of the, uh, the bulletin, you'll find a handout. On one side of it are the notes to the sermon this morning. We're going to be completing uh, our sermon series out of Philippians that we've been calling Shine. And on the back side of it, you'll find what we call the MPG. If you're new to Mac or you're live streaming with us for the first time, MPG basically means miles per gallon in the secular world or the out, you know another way of thinking about MPG. And it's really about how far you can take your vehicle down the road on a gallon of gas. For us, MPG means something else. The same kind of a concept. It's how far you can take the sermon down the road by memorization, by prayer, and by ways that you can glorify God. And so basically we find on the back sheet in the MPG a way for you to take what we're going to be talking about this morning, the scriptures, and applying them to your life in a way that will make it solid and embedded in the way that you think about being a disciple of Jesus. And speaking about being a disciple of Jesus, we'd like to give you an invitation this morning to become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. It is the most significant life. It is a beautiful life. It's not always an easy life. In fact, sometimes it's very, very difficult to be a disciple of Jesus in the world. But the forgiveness, the sense of God's presence, the resources that become available to you, the sense of God's love, the inexpressible joy, the peace that comes into your life, the direction, all of these things and many, many more are part of the blessing of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, which is about following in the steps of Jesus, and it means becoming the kind of human that God always intended for you to be. And if that is something that you desire, or if it's something that maybe you have a couple of questions about, or maybe you just need to know, how does this become a reality in my life? Please see me or one of the elders or staff ministers sometime today, or contact us this week, and we would love to sit down and talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we are at the very end of this series that we've called Shine, out of the letter that we call Philippians, and it's based on this verse out of Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that goes like this. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. That is how Paul is helping the church to understand in Philippi, 21 centuries ago, how they're supposed to look in the community, in the culture, in the world that they are placed. They are to shine among other folk like stars in the sky. So in other words, the church, whether it's in the 1st century or the 21st century, it, the church is to be this beautiful and noticeable presence that shines in the world. That is what we do as a church. It's part of how we understand our presence in the world today. We are a beautiful and noticeable presence that is shining in the world, and this is how we do it. One of the ways that the church shines in the world as it is is when we are thankful for the faithful. At the very beginning of this letter, Paul says to the church in Philippi, every time I remember you, I thank God. And that is such a cut-across-the-grain sentiment in the world today. In our world today, we cancel people, we're hypercritical, we call them out. And to be thankful for people and be thankful for brothers and sisters and to be thankful for the people that are of faith that are in our life is a way that we shine in this world that just loves to cancel out people and to separate from people and even to be hypercritical of people. Another way that the church shines is in its unity. 
Not only are we thankful for the faithful, but we are a community of unity. There are so many different ways, and you, we don't need to keep going over this, but you know better than I do that there are so many ways, so many different reasons in this world, motivations to separate and to be aloof and to become an island and, and to stay away and to disengage and to disunite, that when the church, in all of its diversity, regardless of where we come from, how much money we make, our education, our experiences in life, how we were brought up, all of the diversity it, and being uh, uh, the unity of the community and all of its diversity is one of the things that stands out about the church. We are the body of Christ. One is our natural number. Another way that the church shines in the world today is how, how we approach and handle the bad times. You know, we have to be very realistic as disciples of Jesus. And I think that this, you know, we're following in line with the Bible's realism when it comes to life in this world. We do not deny suffering. We do not deny the existence of, of pain. We do not deny pain in the world. In fact, pain and suffering and sometimes unjust suffering is something that we anticipate. It's something that we know is down the road because of the fallenness of the world. But one of the things that gives us a poise and one of the things that helps us to stay afloat and have buoyancy in those times of suffering when there's turmoil on the sea is that we have a different intentionality in our life. And Paul tells us that one of the ways that he was able to keep his head above water, especially in the suffering times, in prison, in chains, having been beaten, was to know that this different intentionality was his life, all that he did was about exalting Christ, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Knowing all of the eternal gains, not just e in eternity, but eternity begins today, right? As soon as you become a disciple of Jesus, all of the benefits of being a disciple of Jesus are yours. It begins that day, and it goes all the way into eternity. And all of those that we begin experiencing and grow into in this life begin to trump and to triumph over the temporary pains of this world. And then last week, one of the ways that the church shines, this is um, the fourth lesson, was how we shine when it comes to grace. We live in a world where people are trying to, to climb over each other to get to the top. Uh, we have ways of understanding love that, that sound like this, I love you for what I can get out of you. And, and basically, it's the strong eating the weak. And what we discovered in the gospel is that there is no way we can find our way back to God. There is no way on our own merit that we can earn any kind of entrance into the kingdom of God. It comes to us as a grace, which in other words means it comes to us as a gift. It comes to us as a presence of love from God the Father. We talked about last week, you know, justice. Justice is is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. And when you get the all-encompassing, all-saving, all-embracing grace of God as a gift that reconciles you to God and you find yourself as a son and a daughter of God, you realize that you have not only received the greatest gift that you could ever receive, but it is a gift that you could never earn or ever pay back. And that is a game changer. You know, um, as we close out this series, 
One of the things that I'd like to say in parting is that one of the things I think is really special about being a disciple of Jesus is that you wake up every morning with work to do. I mean, there are so many people in our world that get up every morning and they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't have a plan. They don't have a work. They have nothing significant to look forward to in the day. As a disciple of Jesus, you get up every morning and there is a work to do. We have significant work to do. And that work is reintroducing God to the world that he created. We bear witness as disciples of Jesus that the world still belongs to God. That means that every morning we get up, there's a ministry to do. There are good works to do. It means every morning when we you know, roll out of bed, there's a message to speak. There are things to pray about. There's a person to become. And one of the big ones is helping people the people around us, the loved ones who do not know Christ, to decide for the kingdom of God in their own life. And it's those decisions that become incredibly important in, in where we end up in all of eternity. Now think for just a moment about that, deci- that, that one particular decision, or all decisions, really. I mean, when you think about the nature of a decision, people decide whether to do something or not to do something based on the payoff based on what they're going to get out of it. Should I do this? Is the payoff good enough? If it's not, or if it's going to be painful, or it's going to be hurtful, then I'm not going to do it. The question for us when it comes to the idea of shining in the community, being beautiful and noticeable as a presence shining in the community, this question is, is, is at the top. And the question is, is there anything noticeably beautiful in our lives that would help people believe or even want to believe that our message is true. That it is worth giving your life lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus. Now, we're going to end this series today, and I want to end the series with that question along with a statement that Paul makes near the end of the letter. It's it's in this statement that Paul makes at the end of Philippians that people in his time And people in our time have been struggling and fighting and desperately trying to discover through space and time. And the statement is this. Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. Paul says, I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. That's the second time he said that. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, Paul's world uh, was in, in some ways very different from ours and in some ways not very different at all. When Paul was alive in the first century, there were basically three major philosophies and ways that people would try to navigate planet Earth. The first were the cynics. And the cynics were a group of people that felt that contentment was discovered or it was achieved in disconnecting to material things. The second, and sort of like the cynics, were the Stoics. And the Stoics disconnected emotionally from circumstances. So on one side, you know, contentment is found. I'm not going to be bothered. I'll reduce anxiety by being you know, disengaged and disconnected to stuff. There was another philosophy that said that contentment is found in, in not being emotionally controlled by circumstances. I'll dis- disconnect emotionally. 
Well, there was a third one, and that is the Epicureans. And that is contentment is found in pleasure. In the first century, the time of Paul, it was basically in the areas of food and drink. If it were today, the cynic and the stoic in us might say, you know what, I'm tired of the hubbub, the, the exhausting pace of life. I just want to get rid of all of the stuff and the stress that comes from having stuff and stuff and stuff. I want to get away from rush hour traffic. I want to get away from deadlines. I want to go live out in the middle of nowhere around no one. I want to minimize and I want to live in a tiny house. And the Epicurean in us would say, and it better have air conditioning and a nice bathroom. For Christians, the secret to contentment is not in suppressing emotions. God gave us emotions, right? God gave us emotions. We, there are all kinds of emotions, sadness and grief and laughter and, and all kinds of different emotions that are God-given. And contentment is not found in, in pressing that down and swallowing all of our emotions. When you swallow your emotions, it will take it out on your body. And con- contentment is not found in denying reality. You know, the stiff upper lip or liking everything that's happening in your life. You know, sort of like I'm ignoring everything that is really, really bad and just not really paying attention to it, even though it hurts. Or it's not just saying, you know, th- you know, basically smiling and grinning and saying, you know, yeah, things are tough right now, but I love life. And you don't really mean it. And it's not even for settling and saying, you know, maybe my bar was a little bit too high. I'll be better and more s- contented if I just settle and I lower the expectations a little bit. Christian contentment is different from that. Christian contentment comes from the Greek word. Uh, it's uh, uh, not the easiest word in the world to pronounce, autarke. And it's found in Philippians 4, and it's found in two other places in the New Testament, and a lot of times translated as contentment. But notice how it's translated in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about their contribution and their generosity. He says, you know what, here's the thing I know. That God is able to bless you abundantly. That is a great statement and a great lead into what it means to be content in the kingdom of God. God is blessing you and not just giving you, you know, the bare minimum requirement. He is blessing you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, and there's the word, autarke, having all you need you will abound in every good work. God blesses abundantly so that we have all we need to face every obligation, whatever that obligation is. Paul does not say that he has everything that his heart desires. Paul's not saying that I, you know, I just have stacks of collections and collections of collections. Paul's not saying that he has everything that his heart desires or what he would ever want. Paul does not say that he likes being in prison. He doesn't say that he likes being in chains or some kind of you know masochistic about that. He doesn't say that he likes being flogged. But he says that he has learned contentment regardless of the circumstances. And here's the secret. He is able to be content because, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul's contentment comes from Christ giving him and strengthening him 
and supplying him everything he needs to handle whatever circumstance might come his way. And as you know, there were times when Paul was, you know, on top of the world, and there were times when Paul was thrown under the prison. And, and Paul might say that there were moments when he was down in life, but Paul would never say that he's out. And Paul might say he doesn't like something, but Paul never says that he's not going to be able to handle it. That is the witness of his commitment to the church in the first century. And if we were to define commitment for us in the 21st century, it might look something like this, that Christian contentment is the conviction and the well-being that God gives whatever we need whenever we need it. Let me say that again. Christian contentment is the conviction that God gives whatever we need whenever we need it. That means that our contentment is not self-generated, but it's God-generated. It means that real contentment is not natural to our fallen world or within our sinful, fallen selves. I mean, this is what happens in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, everything is perfect. There's no anxiety. Human beings were not built for anxiety. Human beings were built for a relationship with God, and they were placed in a perfect creation. And what happens because of sin entering into the world, there is a separation from God. And because there is a separation, that leads to everything else in the world separating from from relationship with God to relationship with each other to relationship with all of creation. And that is the source of anxiety. It is not within us to self-generate contentment. It is within us to experience anxiety. Now, remember what it is that Paul said in verse 13. He says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And in this text, he gives us four things to do and to think about to to foster contentment in our own life. The first is to remember that the Lord's presence is the place of peace. The Lord's presence is the place of peace. Real peace, real contentment, is not being able to find a lake that doesn't have any storms. Contentment comes on the lake of storms because Jesus is in your boat. Not all of the places that we choose as human beings are really places of peace. I mean, there are times when we put ourselves in places and in the company of other folk that are not going to create peace, not going to create contentment, but are going to create tons and tons of anxiety. Now, notice what it is that Paul says in verse 5 and verse 7. He says, the Lord is near. The peace of God, which you can't really describe because you really shouldn't have that joy. You really shouldn't have that peace. But you have it regardless of the circumstances because of this one fact. The Lord is near and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The God of peace will be with you. One of the ways that Scripture over and over and over again describes God is as a God of peace. That means that the place to find peace is in the presence of God. This is why we are invited as His children to live in His presence as our Father day in and day out. There is nothing that is out of control in the presence of God. There is no panic in the presence of God. Although Paul is in jail, and he's been chained, and he's been hurt through flogging and beating, 
there is a contentment because even though he is in jail, he is in the presence of God. We need to remind ourselves when we get up first thing in the morning that all that is good in my life comes from being in the presence of God. There comes in our beginning prayers of the day a declaration to God that I choose this day to live in your presence. I choose to live in your wisdom. I choose to live in your power. And the peace begins to permeate. The second is think about your thoughts. Think about your thought life. The things that you're putting into your mind that are going into your heart and into your soul. There are so many things that we think about that are not the kinds of thoughts that pull things together but actually separate things because at their very core is a sinfulness and a fallenness. Paul says in verse 8, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, these are the things that you think about. You know, there are words in Philippians like consider and think and knowing and remembering that are just laced throughout this letter, and these are cognitive words. They're about thinking, they're about knowing, they're about knowledge, they're about remembering, they're about using our mind, and it's about data. The point is that the key to contentment is not in the circumstances, but how you think about those circumstances and what you know about those circumstances. And yet, consider the kind of music that we listen to and the violence that is inherent in it, the, 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 the pain at times that is, that is uh, in, encouraged in the music or the kinds of shows that we put before our eyes. We need to think about our thoughts because it is amazing how quickly we can think our way out of contentment and into discontent. For Paul, he doesn't think that his imprisonment, wherever he is, whether it's in Rome or in Ephesus, is a fact that it somehow got passed by. On the contrary, because of being in the presence of God and what it is that he presses his mind into, he writes that being in prison has also been an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Thirdly, pray, pray, and pray. We live in a world where anxiety is epidemic. Everywhere you turn, there is anxiety. And anxiety is the sense that everything is falling apart and we're powerless to do anything about it. There is the rumble of separation and, and anxiety underneath everything. And, and much of the time, we do not know how deeply it has made its way into our bodies until there is a diagnosis of some dis-ease of the body. Now, prayer is not, you know, an aspirin and it's, but, but prayer is about going into the presence of God where there is this peace. It is about knowing who God is and talking to God specifically as the creator of the heavens and the universe who identifies himself as your father, a father to a son, a father to a daughter, and making sure that all of those anxieties, as Peter would say it, that all of those anxieties are cast upon him because he cares. You were not built for anxiety. Anxiety, we, we suffer. Anxiety, we experience in the fallenness of ourselves and of, of the earth. But we, are, we were never created for anxiety. We were created to live in relationship with God on a perfect planet. 
And because there is anxiety and because God is a father, there is a place for that anxiety to go. And that's not in a bear hug. It is to give it over to God. And the best way to do that is to pray and to pray and to pray. He says in verse six, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Can you say that with me? Don't be anxious about anything. Now say it this way. I will not be anxious about anything. Say that with me. I will not be anxious. Some of you don't really believe that, do you? (laughs) He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Why does he throw that in there? Because it's an anticipation that God is going to answer your prayer. So be thankful. Present your request to God. Pray. John Stott, one of the, the uh, died just a couple of years ago, uh, lived a, a, a vow of poverty, was one of the most prolific commentary and religious writers of the, of, the, of the 20th century, a leader in the evangelical world, made tons of money off of it, the sales of his books because they were excellent and profound and deep, and he gave all of it away. Here was a man who had discovered that there was something special about living in the presence of God. And at the end of his life, they asked, what would, if, what would you do differently? And he said, there's not much, but one thing that I would do is pray more. Pray, pray, and pray. And then finally, look for examples of contentment. You know, sometimes we can look at, peop- you know, we, we can look at a text and it says, hey, don't be anxious for anything. But we don't know if we really believe it until we see somebody who actually kind of lives that way, that they're able to roll with the punches, they're able to roll with the flow of things, that nothing really seems to to drag them down underneath the water. They have this poise, they have this buoyancy in the troubled waters and the turmoil. And those are the kind of people that put flesh and blood on the ideas that are presented, the scriptures that are presented in the Bible. And you can look at that person and say, you know what, this sounds like something too too good to be true, but I know that it is true because I see it embodied in the life of this particular individual. And Paul says to them, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or even seen in me, put that into practice. So who are your your examples for life. You know, we live in a world where people are always looking for somebody to idolize, which means that I want to live my life just like them. And most of the people that we idolize in the world are people that are anxiety-ridden and anxiety-driven. And we try to model our life off of them because they're famous or they're rich or they're popular or everybody knows their name. And in trying to emulate their life and walk in their steps, all we're doing is creating the same anxiety that they have in us. Paul says, don't do that. Look at my life and whatever you've seen in me or heard from me or learned from me, walk in those steps because I'm trying to walk in the steps of Jesus. Who are your examples of contentment? Who are the people that embody contentment in such a way that you can begin to to, to emulate their life and imitate their life and to put into practice their practices and put into habit or to make into a habit their daily habit of life with God in such a way that you begin to shine and I begin to shine as people of contentment in a world where contentment is a rarity and contentment is not easily found and it's not easily achieved because all we're trying to do is to generate it from the inside. And Paul says, I've learned contentment a different way. It comes from being in God's presence. 
it comes in being mindful of the way that I think about the world, that it's, it's not how I think about the circumstance, but who is in control of that circumstance. And the kinds of thoughts, noble thoughts, true thoughts, worthy thoughts that I put in my mind that go into my heart and into my soul. And it's about spending time with, with God in prayer. And it's learning to walk like one who is contented, like Jesus. And if you see any of that in me, Paul writes, then follow that example. One of the ways, if you're looking for somebody that's an example of contentment, is to look for the other word that's found a lot in the fourth chapter of Philippians, and that's the word rejoice. People who genuinely rejoice are people who have found a level of contentment that regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their station in life, regardless of what they might be experiencing in that moment or the circumstances, how much money they have in the bank, what problems might be happening with their car, they are able to rejoice because of what they know about God, His presence, His blessings, and His identity as a father who loves them. And that's why he says, you know, as, as a church, you shine in contentment. And people see that contentment in the way that you rejoice. Are you content? Are you content? Let's give it a shot and let's rejoice together as we stand and sing.